Welcome to Season 4 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Dr. Adam is a peak performance researcher, professional speaker, author and consultant. In this wide-ranging and incredibly personal discussion we talked about, his response to COVID as a dad, as a leader and as a business owner, and why this very nearly broke him. His favourite bands, The Stones, Earth, Wind and Fire, and why one of his greatest memories was at an Iron Maiden concert. The importance of asking great questions, being driven by data, and the significance of challenging assumptions why he has fallen in love with working with school principals and the importance of transitioning between spaces, whether personal or professional. This conversation with Adam was very special and had a huge impact on me. In particular, his personal struggles with feeling the pressure to have it all together and his views on the pervasive effects of burnout and how these can reach into all aspects of our lives. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Dr. Adam Fraser, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Lovely, lovely. Where are you? Uh, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm in Leichhardt in Sydney, so I'm in my office, uh, just in lockdown, <laughs> rocking the lockdown hairstyle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm, I'm Sydney based. Nice one. Nice. Uh, how are you? Uh, how, how have you found the, the, uh, the last 18 months to two years with lockdown? How's your, how are you coping with it all? Yeah, well, initially, oh, quite devastating. I mean, 2020, we'd had a really record year set up. Um, some, a lot of big projects and big things we were working on for a number of years came off. And then obviously when panic hit, uh, those things got cancelled. So it was truly devastating to see all that work. And then, you know, the whole panic of, is the business going to survive? What can we do? And then we got really busy working hard and uh, we've done exceptionally well. Like it's been tough, but this lockdown, this second one, um, you know, we've barely skipped a beat. So we've come out of it, particularly in my space with presenters. I'm talking to a lot of people who have have no work whatsoever but we've done we've done extremely well Mm, fantastic that's uh you obviously must have pivoted really well because it was nothing that uh, i think no one could have quite imagined uh going on as long as it has but it's yeah no one picked this one yeah it's it's pretty crazy quite possibly the most important question for the interview what's your coffee order actually until probably i met my wife i never really drank coffee well i didn't drink coffee and uh she's italian and uh, we were in Italy on a holiday and uh, I tried coffee there and I, was, I went, oh my God, this is amazing. Because the coffee I'd tried before is when I was at university. Yeah. As an academic, we had the, you know, one of those freeze-dried things which tastes like office dust. Yeah. Um, so yeah, soy latte is my, my coffee of choice. Yeah, I, I just think uh, freeze-dried coffee is never a good idea. Uh, no, I think it's, yeah, I think it's punishment. It's shocking. It's shocking. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, um, is there a book uh, that you've recently read uh, that has uh, caused you to, to, to question everything? 
Wow, what an interesting question. I um, I've actually really pull back on how much I read because I'm a researcher. I kind of read papers and read data and, and analyze our own data um, rather than being a voracious reader. I mean, the one that jumps to mind is a book called Switch by Dan and Keith, uh, Dan and Chip Heath. Um, and what it's about is behavior change and how we can use, how we can help people change their behavior. So that's a, a book that I love, but I haven't really read a lot of stuff lately. Um, I've got to get back into that habit. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you a, a podcast listener? Uh, are you an audio book listener? Yeah, I start to listen to audio books, but my problem is I'll hear something and go, oh, that's gold and I've got to jot it down. But I'm on an exercise bike or I'm going for a walk or I'm in the gym and yeah, I can't do that. So I find that if I want to really learn from a book, I need the physical book where I can write all over it and bookmark things so I can come back to it. Yeah. Um, so the audio book I do do, but doesn't work for me that well. I've really of late started to get into podcasts just because with COVID lockdown, yeah, I have a real big uh, strategy around my well-being, but also doing things to prevent burnout. And a lot of those things I can't do. So what I'm doing every morning is at 5.30, get up, walk around the bay, and I listen to a podcast while I do that. I'm listening yeah. to Armchair Expert, Dax Shepard. Um, Brene Brown stuff is always great. Um, yeah, so that's that's me and podcasts. Fantastic. Um, just out of interest, why was the greatest moment in your life being in, in the front row at an Iron Maiden concert? Oh, because they freaking rock. <laughs> like I was a massive metalhead when, well, I still am. Um, but, you know, particularly in my teenage years, I was right into heavy metal and Iron Maiden were just, I thought, geniuses. And, you know, you can hear one or two bars and you know it's an Iron Maiden song. They have a, such a distinct sound. And they're actually incredible, incredible musicians, like the bass player is one of the best heavy metal bass players. And Bruce Dickinson, who's the lead singer, has, like, has an amazing voice. And it was at the Horton Pavilion. Um, I can't remember what year it was, but I was in front row and like I was getting crushed and it was rough and oh, I was just amazing. Yeah. So I love it. But it's don't tell my family. That's my oh, greatest moment. Look, it, it, this is just a discussion between you and me. No one else will ever hear that. So you, you, your children uh, don't share that same love and passion for Iron Maiden? Uh, yeah. Iron Maiden's a step too far. <laughs> I mean, uh, one thing I've tried to do is educate my children on the Stones and the Beatles and, um, yeah, some of the softer stuff that I listen to. But, yeah, New Order, like the whole, they've, they've had a real eclectic mix. Um, yeah, they love uh, Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. So, yeah, I try to educate them on that all the way through to, you know, uh disco earth wind and fire and the whole bit but yeah i've i've tried to but my 11 year old's starting to get into real pop nonsense and it's, it's slowly eroding my will to live so hopefully she doesn't go too far down that track that's that's amazing uh pop nonsense and eroding your will to live it's, it's a strong <laughs> statement but I, I i completely understand yeah it's uh um 
Adam, I'm just interested, uh, what was your uh, upbringing like and what are you uh, most grateful for in terms of that? Yeah, I, li- I grew up in Thoreau on the South Coast. So my childhood was, um, I was either had a, I was either surfing or playing sport or like in the bush building cubbies. And um, I had an incredibly active childhood. And uh, my wife once said to my mum, was Adam a well-behaved child? And she said, oh, he was, inc- he never got into trouble. And I think part of the reason was he was too exhausted from all the sports that he played. He didn't have the energy to create trouble, but um, nice. yeah, it was good. And I had really good friends and, you know, my best friend is a guy called Murray Taylor and he's someone that I'm still incredibly close to today. And yeah, so um, it was, it was very physical. It was very uh, nature based. Uh, yeah. It was a great upbringing. Fantastic. I know uh, from experience, the rule is a uh, it's a beautiful part of the world um, yeah it's paradise it's got a it's now got a number of hipster coffee shops so it's well <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's been discovered which is a bit sad but my parents are still there and they still love it yeah it's beautiful we uh we, we just live sort of at the, at the uh probably about half an hour away from the rule and when uh as soon as these restrictions are lifted it's, it's the one of the first places that we'd, we'd love to go it's 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 really beautiful. Um, it's sort of, you're right, it's sort of like an undiscovered part of Sydney, yeah. which unfortunately is becoming discovered and also very expensive. I think gone are the days where people can buy big houses down in Thoreau now. Oh God, yeah, you're looking at some serious coin to do that now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, um, Adam, what's your life like now? What consumes most of your time? And, and for those people that aren't familiar with your work, uh, what do you how do you explain what you do yeah well professionally i spend my time in three main areas so uh, one is presenting and i've been a keynote speaker for many many years Um, usually do about 120 presentations a year most of it is obviously virtual at the moment which i've adapted to quite well like i i think that it's um It's been quite good and and it still gets good results. I I look forward to getting back on stage because it's a different experience. The second area is research. So we partner with different universities around the world to study specific issues. For example, we just did Australia's first study into the mental health and wellbeing of financial advisors. Um, We've also, we just won a global award actually for our research, the Academy of Management out of 4,000 papers gave our paper the best paper for 2020, um, which was amazing. And uh, I still have the plaque. And uh, the third area is we do large scale interventions. So for example, we're working with partners in professional services firms to look at how do we prevent burnout. So that's a project we're working together on. We also do something called the Flourish Movement, which is a program for school leaders around mental health, well-being, and effectiveness. So it's it's I'm either presenting, doing research or running big interventions. So, I mean, it's an interesting link, uh, sorry, leap from um, financial planners to, uh, to school principals and educators. Um, are there some parallels between the two or, or why, uh, why have you chosen to look at both of those industries? Well, I mean, this is fast, really. I mean, uh, how the Flourish movement started is a group of school principals on the South Coast led by Bob Willits, who's a principal at Berry Public School. 
uh, he he approached me and said, you know, our well-being suffering, uh, people are really struggling. Can you come up with a program that addresses this? So we sat down. I brought Deakin University on board uh, to do the research. And from the research, we sat in a room with these principals and designed the intervention together. And I think what a lot of consultants or presenters or facilitators is they think they have all the answers. And why Flourish has been so successful is we sat down and went, well, what about this? And sometimes they, they said, well, that sucks. It's not, <laughs> that doesn't relate to us. We'd prefer if, it were, if you included this. And because we co-created it, it just works so incredibly well. The financial advisor thing, um, I presented at a conference and a group of 50-year-old guys bailed me up afterwards and said, you need to help us. Because I was talking about the work I was doing with other groups. And they said, you know, we're really struggling with our well-being, our mental health. We've had so much change in this industry. Like, we need your help. And that's what started it. So it was really, you know, being asked to do those interventions rather than seeking them out. Yeah. Look, um, Adam, I think that's fascinating. And even the, uh, the point you raised about um, uh, a holiday of research and research, research sorry, and practice. I mean, how important yeah. is it to, um, to not go into these um, uh, organisations or environments and think you know all the answers? And, and how do you uh, begin to ask those questions that really get to the bottom of some of the issues? That's a great question. Uh, my big positioning in the marketplace is that I do my own research and everything I talk about is, um, you know, what we've discovered in our research and the concepts we've come up with. And what I see is a, a lot of presenters or even authors are just kind of rehashing other people's stuff. And if you think about Carol Dweck's growth mindset, fixed mindset, I think there was a period every book I read talked about that or every presenter was talking about growth mindset, fixed mindset. And, you know, I think it's important to come up with your own stuff and, and do your own research. And, and that's what drives that. But the second part of it is that you actually start to address the issues. For example, partners in professional services firms, like these are big firms, Urson Young, KPMG, those sorts of firms, you know, they see a lot of burnout in their partners. And what they were doing was resilience training. They're, they're trying to train them to be more resilient. Yeah. And what our research showed is that their resilience levels were off the charts. Like to get in the seat, you have to be incredibly resilient. Wow. The, the problem wasn't we have to make them stronger. The problem was we have to allow them to practice self-care. So that our research showed they didn't have a resilience problem, they had a recovery problem. And that's the beauty of research is we start to understand what's going on for the group. And even, you know, similar thing for school principals. They, I mean, half their arm could be hanging off and they'd still show up for work. And, and their big block is the guilt of if I do something for myself, that means I'm a bad leader or a bad principal. So what Flourish did was come up with solutions to those mindsets that got in the way of them having good well-being. And that's what the research does is rather than coming in and thinking you've got all the answers, you learn about the group and then develop the solutions that they need.
Wow, that's that's really fascinating. It doesn't surprise me at all to hear that about educators and guilt. Um, oh, it's is, huge. It's huge. Is there, I'm just interested, is there a, or has there been an assumption that you have held that you have found to be incorrect when it's come to your research? Oh, God. We can loop back to that question if you like. I know that was a bit of a curveball. I mean, oh, it's just a, it's a big, interesting question. I mean, what I try to do is go into each research project without assumptions. Okay. Uh, it's really bloody hard though, because you still have them, but you try and minimize the bias that that creates. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you, just with this sort of research, you really get to understand the group. And I have properly fallen in love with school principals. They're just amazing people. They're, they're the group I love to work with the most. They're this beautiful blend of, like they're intelligent and bright and curious, but also humble enough to, to listen and learn and change things. And often I work with groups that are very senior. And I had this the other day. We were talking about, you know, a specific model that helps prevent burnout. And they were a very senior, very cognitive group. And this guy must have spent 20 minutes arguing the tiny nuances of the research. And I'm like, dude, you know, we, you, you're just wasting time on this. It, it, this is a, yeah. like, this is a, a, a cognitive exercise that's not getting the right outcome for you. It, it, they were focusing on the wrong thing. So sometimes with groups, they get caught up in uh, the, the argument around the data rather than, well, okay, I am currently struggling and I, my mental health isn't great. What action do I need to take? Sometimes with those more really smart groups is they can get in their own way and want to argue about things rather than going, well, yeah, I've got this pain or I've got this struggle how do I move into action on it? But um, yeah, I mean, the school principals, they're extraordinary people. They, they, definitely, they definitely are. I mean, school principals are, are absolutely incredible. And I think schools are such uh, diverse and multifaceted environments that it really yeah. does require um, a number of skills to be able to lead and manage them. They, they are really um, quite unique environments. Yeah, by far, school principals, the toughest job we've ever come across. And we've been doing this for 25 years. Wow. I mean, it is a tough, tough gig. Yeah, That's, it's really interesting um, to hear you say that because it really obviously confirms some of the things that I believe. I believe that um, that being a school principal is the hardest job on the planet. Um, yeah. It's so complicated and ever um, more so after, our, after this um, pretty challenging 18 months that we've had. Do you think self-awareness is really important? Um, because obviously... Uh, to be able to recognize that you are burnt out or stressed or overworked or uh, it requires a level of self-reflection surely yeah i think oh, i think self-awareness is the whole ball game yeah. and um we chronically lack it me included yeah you know i um with covid uh when it first happened my big trigger is I came from a family that didn't have a lot of money. So my big fear is it's all going to go away and we're going to end up on the street, right? And uh, when COVID happened, it was almost like my worst nightmare coming true. Wow. 
And so I flipped out, you know, I was really struggling and I've never used my own research to help myself more than in that time. And particularly like we do a lot of work around psychological flexibility, which is the ability to have negative thoughts and emotions and predict disaster, but still do the right behavior. So the, it's the flexibility of, yeah, I can think this or I can feel this, but I don't necessarily have to follow that. Yeah. And that was something I was using the entire time. Like I was really struggling. I, I certainly think I had some sort of, well, I definitely had anxiety or some sort of level of depression. But what I used was this strategy to, to keep myself on track, to make good business decisions, to, to still be a good husband and parent and not take it out on my kids. Um, so you know, this was a period of time where I had to use my own research to cope with that. And I'm just wondering, where was I going with that? Sorry, I got into that story. Where, what was the lead into that? Uh, look, that's a great question. I was so enamoured, fascinated <laughs> by your story. Um, I, I think we were talking oh, about self-awareness. Self that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, one of the first things I did is I got a, like, I went into therapy. I got a therapist and, um, you know, this guy just really challenged me and made me think of, of what was going on in my life. And it, and, and it just developed so much self-awareness. And I think that self-awareness of, well, do I love being the victim? Do I love rescuing people? Which is something um, school principals like to do, which is I've got to solve everyone's problems and look after themselves. But yeah. the fallout of that is, you know, I burn out and then I do a terrible job. I, I think self-awareness is critical. And even, you know, as part of that therapy, I was talking about a situation and the, the therapist I'm seeing really challenged me on my parenting and, and really criticized some of those things that I was doing. And I found it incredibly confronting, but it was almost when, when he said it, I couldn't argue with it because that instant moment of, oh God, yeah, I do do that. Mm. And I, I, I think out of all things, the, the self-awareness is absolutely essential yeah. and we can't evolve until we have that clarity. And I see uh, leaders, not only school leaders, but corporate leaders are chronically unaware of their impact on others, but also at the same time are too frightened to really look at and be self-aware because they mightn't like what they see. Wow. There's, uh, Adam, there is, there's so much in that, um, so many points that you raised there. I'm, I'm just curious, how are, you, how are you going now in terms of um, working through that fear of, of losing everything? Yeah, it's really, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm in a really good space. Uh, and I think what COVID did is, number one, just stop me traveling. So, you know, I've been home for more dinners than I have, you know, in the last 18 months than the previous probably eight years. I used to travel a lot. I used to fly a lot. So the bond and connection I have with my children and my wife is far stronger wow. than ever before. So that is brilliant. It also got me to think about, you know, part of that therapy was what's my identity if I'm not 
you know, doing 130 keynotes a year, getting a round of applause every day. Like, what is what is my identity? What what do I want to do, and what do I want to achieve? And um, I mean, for me, COVID has been an incredible blessing. Yeah. And and it's very interesting. Is like in February 2020, we released a new book called Strive, yeah. and the tagline is "Embrace the Gift of Struggle." And what the whole book's about is that we're so afraid of struggle and discomfort. We want, we just want to be happy all the time. We want to be positive all the time. And what this book talks about is the dangers of that, but also the incredible learnings and evolution that comes from struggle and discomfort. So it was almost like I, I released this book and then I had to live it for the next 18 months. <laughs> Maybe COVID's my fault. I'm not sure. Look, it, it sounds uh, uh, incredibly painful. Um, you write, you go through the uh, the pains of writing a book, and then you have to outlive it, or then you have to live it. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and on that, um, Adam, do you think strive is um, sorry? The concept of strive is a is a bit of a dirty word. Do you think we don't like talking about um, the struggle and embracing the challenges? And as a result of that, do you think that leaves people quite unprepared for when the inevitable happens? Yeah, I think, you, I think you nailed it just then. One of the things our research showed is that we've been so consumed with happiness and the happiness movement and even positive psychology to some degree um, has skewed us away from, well, we see that discomfort is bad. Yeah. Like that's our mentality. And this um, brilliant woman called Barbara Held wrote a white paper called uh i think it's called the 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 dark side of positive psychology and what she's talking about is we've just gone too far and in that she says society tells us that positive emotion is good and good for us negative emotion is bad and bad for us and what we've got to be able to do is embrace emotions all different types of emotions all different types of thought yeah but we've almost got we become afraid of our own mind and emotions so that we think, you know, if, if we're not feeling happy, because the happiness movement has really told us we should feel happy all the time. Happiness is the ultimate state. We, we want to get rid of negative emotion. Mm. And it's really caused us to have a dysfunctional relationship with those things when they're incredibly important and, and they're just a part of life. So going back to your statement and I see this particularly in children is that because of this, we're not equipping people to understand and sit with uncomfortable thoughts and emotions. It's really interesting. And, and before we hit record, I asked if you had any uh, dad advice. I mean, I both have, uh, sorry, I have two <laughs> young, young daughters. Your, your daughter's a little bit older than mine. But what does is, what is this sort of tell us about how to, Sorry, how can we build resilience better in young people? Because I want to protect my kids from everything. Um, I don't want them to, uh, this morning, my little one got a blister because she had new shoes and it broke my heart. Like, <laughs> I know that's, that's just a part of life and she will yeah. go through things that are far worse than a blister heel. So how do, we, how do we hold that tension and expose them to things that are challenging and, and sometimes painful, but also protect them? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Wow, we could spend about... A whole other episode, isn't it? Well, I reckon we could spend about eight hours on that. One thing I would recommend, we've developed this new model 
uh, called the 4H model. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is how do you support people through struggle and discomfort? And the first H is heart. And what this is about is the ability, when someone's going through struggle, the ability to connect on an emotional level. And the way we do that is to name and validate the emotion they are going through. And what our research shows is we're, we're very poor at doing that. So if someone's going through a hard time, we want to say, oh, it's not that bad or you know, we should focus on all the good things that are happening or, yeah. you know, what are you grateful for at the moment? And what we want to move them from is that, well, so-called negative state to a more positive state, usually because it makes us uncomfortable, but to be around someone that's not coping. And what we're doing is not validating their experience. Now, we saw this in the bushfires. What happened is a lot of people that in the the 2020 bushfires at the start of the year, um, people that lost everything. So their house went up, their car, every possession. When they reached, but they were physically safe, when they reached out to people and said, oh my gosh, I'm really struggling or I'm finding life so hard. The most common response was, it could have been worse, at least you're alive. And what that really says to people is that, well, get over yourself, you should be more appreciative. And what they didn't get was people going, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine how you feel. Like, of course you are struggling with that. Of course that's, you're upset. Like that's a normal response to that. How can I help you? So no one named and validated their emotion. And it caused serious issues for these people because they started to think, oh my gosh, am I selfish? Am I superficial? Oh, I don't appreciate what I have. When what they needed was for someone to go, that sucks. Mm. Like, of course you feel crap. Feel free to feel crap. And I'm here for you when you need me. And how we relate this back to children is too often with children when they express discomfort, we tell them not to feel that way. Don't cry. Don't be jealous. Share your toy. Um, you know, don't be angry when, and this is the greatest parenting thing that I've ever learned by far, is that hate, that first H in that 4H model of heart is to validate them. You know, my daughter came home from school um, one day and, and, you know, she'd had an argument with one of her friends and she was really distressed. And I just sat with her and went, oh man, that's got to be so hard. And, and I understand why you're so upset. And, it, and when that happened to me, I used to think, oh my gosh, I'm not going to have any friends anymore. Or I'm not going to talk to that person. And all I did was kept validating yeah. what she was going through. And what that did is opened her up to talk about that situation. Whereas, you know, a lot of parents will go, well, we'll stop hanging out with them, find new friends. But that doesn't help. Or even actually, here's a classic example. So I've got an 11 year old and an eight year old, 11 year old before we went into lockdown, had a friend over. The two 11 year olds are playing together. My eight year olds trying to get in on the action. But after an hour, they're, they're like, I'm done and start to be mean to her. So she'd go away. So I don't know this is happening, but as I walked past, I asked my youngest to put something away 
and she screams at me and slams the door and goes into a room. Now, traditionally, you'd walk in there and go, you can't talk to me like that. You're out of line and you can stay in your room. And I just went in and went, hey, what did something happen with Bella? And she went, yeah. And I said, oh, are they excluding you? And she said, yeah, I want to play with the big girl's dad, but they won't let me play. And I just sat down with her and went, oh, Lex, when my sister did that, I hated it. Like, it just used to break my heart. How are you feeling? And she goes, well, I feel like, you know, I don't belong or I'm, I'm mad or I'm sad or I'm frustrated. And we just started to talk about what was going on for her, what emotion she was feeling. And I told her it was okay to feel like that. And then she, she looks at me and goes, I'm so sorry I yelled at you, daddy. I shouldn't have done that. And I went, that's cool. Why don't we go and play something? But if I'd have gone in there combative, you're, you're out of line, you shouldn't talk to me, the whole thing would have blown up. But it's that the ability to name and validate someone's emotion really helps connect with them, but also helps them to move on to constructive action far quicker. Yeah, it's so important. I was just thinking about a, um, an issue that I had with my little one. I think it was this, actually this morning where she slammed the door and she's, she's four. And so it's sort of at that age where she's starting to really feel emotions quite deeply. Yep. And um, I was really angry at it because I, I said, you shouldn't be shutting doors and blah, blah, blah. And I was rushing and I was doing things that she was interrupting things that I wanted to do and so on and so forth. And I think probably what I need to do is go give her a hug and actually take yeah. time and say, look, I'm really, I'm really sorry for that. And, and, and I think one of the things that, um, sorry, this feels like a therapy. Thanks. <laughs> for both of us. I'll, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wait to get your invoice. Uh, for yeah. the therapy. Um, uh, but one of the things that I've been trying to do and something that my wife is much better at than I am is apologizing quickly um, and just taking the time to go, Hey, um, I'm really sorry about that. Or oh, daddy was really tired and he shouldn't have reacted like that. And, and just to be a little, uh, to try and build that culture of apologizing and also acknowledging, um, I think is, it's really difficult. Like, and it's been really hard. And I think yeah. I'm kind of noticing a, a bit of a pattern. I think that, that things happen uh, when uh, I sort of come home or I'm cranky or I've had a, a stressful day. And obviously the, the amount of disagreements um, goes through the roof and I think I'm probably the common denominator in that one uh, because they've been fine throughout the day um, yeah. and so it's look it's really difficult isn't it to try and yeah. um, parenting is is a, 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 such an incredible privilege but it's also hard and I think going back to our what we're talking about about the role of say school principals and teachers is we are um, we're dealing with little humans that are trying mm. to work out the world. Um, we're dealing with challenges and stresses. And I think it's, it's a really, really challenging job. I mean, one of the things that I'm uh, trying to stop doing with my kids is, oh, sorry, my friends is to sort of story top. So when someone says, um, hey, I, I had a really bad day because a parent yelled <laughs> at me, what I'll do is I'll go in my head, I'll go, I'll start building those connections and saying, thinking that reminds me of a time when a parent yelled at me and, yeah, and yeah. instead of actually actively listening uh, I feel yeah. like parallels with my own experience which is infuriating to those that are listening yeah or it's like oh, I've had this terrible day and then you go you reckon that's a bad day let me tell yeah. you about mine yeah but, yeah but this ability to sit and listen and empathize and connect 
is so vital. And you touched on a thing before about how hard it is to do. So my eldest daughter, when she gets anxious, she gets mean. Like she'll say mean things to you. So when she's uncomfortable and you're trying to support her or talk rationally to her, she'll be mean. Like that. that's just a pattern of behavior. And what the, the problem with that is the story in my head you shouldn't talk to me like that. That's out of line. You know, I, sh I should punish you for that. And in that moment, what I've got to use is that psychological flexibility around, yeah, I know I have this story and I know I have this emotion, but the thing that's going to help her right now is if I just give her a, hu a hug. Yeah, just be a dad. Yeah, and, and like every part of my body is going, don't do that. Tell her off. You're right. She shouldn't. Like my my cognitive world is saying do something different that's not going to help and what I have to do is park that and just give her a hug and as soon as I connect with her and go you must be really sad or you must be really uncomfortable to be saying that right now she comes straight down and then we start to have a rational conversation and you know there's consequences to bad behavior but it's 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 that ability if you're trying to rationalize with a child that's in that state, it's just not going to happen because their their prefrontal cortex is offline. Mm. The the connection to emotion and that feeling of safety and a lack of judgment, that's the first step that allows you to then move into more constructive behavior. Yeah, it, it's so interesting, and I think um, uh, I have a million questions, but it, it's really interesting. I think because. Um, like I know with my kids and also being a husband, it's like, do I need to be a husband here and just give my lovely wife a, a, a hug? Or do I need to be a dad here and, yeah. and uh, go and uh, read a story with my kids? Or do I actually need, in terms of my children, to be the authoritative, authoritative figure that says, no, this is how it's going to be? And I think being able to, uh, putting a bit of a pause, I think, between the, and, and look, I feel like I'm quite a, uh, I'm quite a, easygoing sort of relaxed guy um, yeah. but I, I do think having that pause and actually saying to myself okay what do I need to be here because we all wear we all wear multiple hats and it actually made me really think about um about some of your work where you talk about the the third space and I think yeah. it's, really, it's really interesting because I, I remember uh, and I've seen it a number of times like um uh, your TED talk and I think the first time I watched it I actually just came home and I was pretty cranky and I was annoyed because whatever happened and I'd actually carried that into into our home um so this makes me sound like I'm a terrible dad I'm actually doing okay I think um but it's hey it, we've all been there oh we're getting there. <laughs> but, but it's so, it was so interesting and I remember watching your TED talk this, this would have been quite a long time ago and then actually pausing it and going into my kids and going into my wife and saying hey like I'm really sorry um and then coming back and watching the rest of it and I think um why is that why is the third space such an important thing why do we need those sort of transitional spaces between different parts of our day yeah i mean in 25 years of research the third space is the most popular concept i've ever developed wow like people love it and people still send me emails about you know the impact that it's made mm. and i mean what it looks at is how do we transition from one thing to another so how do we go from, you know, one meeting to another or how do we go from 
uh, an interaction with a stakeholder to then, if we're a leader, talking to our team about performance. And what it looks at is that that transitional gap in between we call the third space. So whether you're a surgeon about to go into surgery or whether you're a salesperson about to walk into you know, the biggest pitch of your life, how do you use that transitional gap to show up at your best? Now, you described it in the context of how do I go from work to home, which is one of the most popular applications of this theory. And too often, as you said, we take the, the mood and mindset of the day home with us. And often it's, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, and we show up and we tend to take the day out on our family if we live with others. Or we go home if we live on our own and we ruminate and worry about things. So what it's about is how do I use all these transitional gaps to get over what I've just been through, but most importantly, get my head right for what's coming next. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And honestly, it's been something that, I, that has really transformed the way that I approach um, approach my day and realizing sort of what is the main thing like as much as I love my job and like what I get to do the main thing or the main things are at home when I come home and making sure that they get the best um that they get the best bits because in your TED talk you uh, you talked I think it was about an elite uh, it was an elite sportsman that uh, sorry uh, sorry a businessman my mistake that actually had another um door added yeah. <laughs> um yeah. Would you mind just unpacking that story? Because that, that's fascinating, really fascinating. Well, how I came up with the third space was I just had a series of interactions. One of them, like we'd done some work with special forces soldiers and, and I said to these guys, and some of them became friends, I said, what's the hardest part about being in the special forces? And they, all of them, and I'm thinking not die is probably the answer. Yeah. And, um, and they said, oh, coming home by far like disaster first couple of weeks after I come home I fight with my family uh it's just it's a terrible experience and what they talked about is that they're away doing things we can't even comprehend and then in the matter of days they're dropped back into society and they're supposed to fit in and and while they've been away the family's changed and so what we looked at for them is is working on that transition back into their home life really helped them. Um, so there was just all these series of things I started to explore that showed how important it is what to transition effectively. But the the CEO one was, you know, I had had dinner with the CEO in his family home and met his family, and yeah, they were great people. And in that home environment, he was so present and patient and fun and funny. And the whole meal, I'm just thinking, I, I, that's how I want to be when I'm at home. And I said, how do you do that? Like, how do you go from psycho businessman to super dad? And what he talked about is how he built a new entrance into his bedroom from the garage. So he parks the car in the garage. He walks through that door into his bedroom, doesn't talk to another family member, has a shower, does a bit of relaxation, and then he goes greet the, greets the family. Wow. And he said... That's like, it's, I use that time to shut down the work part of me to the home part of me. And I started to share this story with people and it resonated so much. And people just said, my gosh, it's so effective, whether I'm working from home or I'm working from the office, it's how do I shift gears? How do I 
go from work mode to home mode. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating, honestly. And obviously we can't all afford to, to put a new door into our, um, yeah. <laughs> to our Certainly. I'm just curious, um, Adam, what that looks like uh, for you, um, especially being someone who works from home and even more so uh, during uh, this pandemic, how do you try and sort of create those spaces? Yeah, well, I mean, currently now I have one single thing I do and that's when I finish work, I grab my dog Tilly and my daughters and we go for a walk to the dog park and Tills runs around and they climb trees and do cartwheels and then I come home and that's a signal that I'm now in dad mode and I put my phone on charge and I throw it under the bed so I don't see it, it's not around me. Um, that's what I do. I mean, pr prior to COVID, I would often be flying in from somewhere or so I'd use that drive from the airport to home as my third space. Um, but I mean, we can apply this to any context, um, whether you live on your own, whether you're with a family, but it's just, what do I do in that gap? And our research with Deakin University showed that there were three key parts. The first part is reflect. And as I move away from the workday, how do I reflect on that day? And most people reflect on all the crappy stuff that happened. Yeah. But in that, you got to look at, well, what went well? What did I achieve? How did I, how did I get better? How did I evolve today? Yeah. Which obviously puts you in an optimistic mindset. The next stage is called rest, which is anything that makes you still and present and focuses your brain on one thing to calm that noise down. And it could be Sudoku on the bus. It could be a podcast. It could be relax doing relaxation if you're working from home. And then the last phase is just simply called reset. And that is where we think about, well, how do I want to show up? Hmm. What sort of impact do I have? What sort of parent, partner do I want to be if, if, you know, if, if that's my situation? So it's really those three steps. And what we're hearing from people is, oh, I'm using the third space more now that I'm working at home. So when I finish work, I shut the day down. I do some of that reflection about what I achieve. And I think about the next day. I do a little relaxation or a hobby or anything or even going for a walk. And then that reset phase is about, well, okay, yeah, I want to be playful or I want to be fun or I want to be um, empathetic and, and preparing ourselves for that next interaction. So that's what that's yeah. what that perfect transition looks like. It's really, and I just wanted to personally thank you for those, uh, those questions. So reflect, rest and reset because... I use a, a journaling app called Day One, um, and after each school day, uh, those three questions, as a result of um, uh, finding your work or reading yeah. your work, um, come up as a prompt. And so it's it's real. I don't always fill them in, uh, but they're always uh, at the forefront of my mind at three thirty when the uh, prompt comes on my computer. And I think just taking the time to go, okay, what worked really well? Uh, what did I achieve? Um, and how can I be present and how, how do I want to show up? And, yeah. and um, yeah, it's been really, um, I think, really transformative for me um, personally. And, and my advice to anyone that's thinking about uh, using those questions, um, try and get a system or a process that, that helps to keep those at the forefront of your mind. Because it's really powerful when you take the time to stop and just think. Um, yeah, and it gets you... Uh, um, 
it starts you to focus on evolution yeah. and innovation. And too often we learn from our mistakes, but we don't learn from our victories as well. And, and we don't often sit down and analyze and look at, well, why did that work? Or yeah. why, why was that successful? Or why was I so productive today? Yeah. And, and those questions start us to understand, you know, it, it gets us to study what's working well rather than just, Oh, what are my capability gaps? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, that, that's so important. And um, do you um, do you want to go back to what it was like before COVID? I'm just interested. Or, or are there some things that you've gone, look, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to spring back into those habits. So just from a personal point of view. Yeah, I definitely don't want to go back to the mania that was my life before. Like uh, I'll certainly obviously travel again when that comes up but just not to the extent that I was like I have a I have a routine which is something I haven't had for 20 years um it's just yeah it's brilliant and being around my daughter so much um uh yeah I love it so yeah there's definitely a shift in um my lifestyle and it sounds really corny but COVID's probably the greatest gift I've ever received wow it's really that's really interesting how it can both be an incredible challenge um, mm. it can also be a, a real blessing at the same time but I, I couldn't agree more there's just some things I'm not willing to do anymore um, and I think previously to COVID I would always um, I think my calendar would be quite open for uh, sorry my, my family time would be uh, open to be interrupted um, and so I might I'd always catch up for some with someone for coffee or for lunch but I think the thing that I've really realized is by saying yes to something, you actually really say no to something else. Yeah. And and if we put it in like a school or a teaching context, Hmm. we did some research with a a bunch of schools around what worked during that first lockdown. Because the the biggest piece of feedback was we have never innovated, uh, collaborated, shared information, shared practice, um, as well as we did when we went into that very first lockdown in, I think it was April, 2020. And what the school said is we nailed it. And we interviewed parents, like thousands of parents. And they said, oh my gosh, my school did an incredible job. So what we saw is that once we went back to sort of normal, schools didn't take the time to go, well, what what made that such a great experience in terms of our culture? And they just snapped back to how they used to work. Yeah. So we were working with a number of schools to go, no, 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 don't snap back. What worked? And let's incorporate it into our operation, how we operate moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, and are you... Um... Are you confident that schools will be able to do that? Um, I mean, I am, I've been criticised many times for being too optimistic, which is, is not too, a terrible insult, but <laughs> optimistically, I would like to think that we can. Um, practically, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it depends on the leadership of the school. And um, I see this in corporate organisations as well, where they'll have some sort of massive challenge and um, they overcome it, but they do not take the time to reflect and go, how did we pull that off? Or what were the elements? It's just kind of, oh, we got that done. What's next? And they don't take that time to reflect and learn from what they did so well. Hmm. It's it's really interesting. And I guess time will will reveal that, won't it? If um, 
if we do spring back. But but I've been so fascinated to see that industries that we which we thought were um, unable to go online, whether that be teaching or, or real estate or anything like that. Yeah. It's, it's been really interesting to see that. I mean, we just did a, um, this morning, we just did a virtual inspection for the unit that we uh, are renting. And uh, it was great because we just got to, we could just move stuff from one room to the other. So it looked nice. <laughs> um, but I, I never in a million years thought that that certain industries would, would uh, go online. Um, it's, really fascinating in my home we've, we've adapted very well yeah yeah absolutely um i i just want to be conscious i'm just conscious of your time uh, adam because i'm incredibly grateful like i said that you would uh, talk to me today but but i'm interested um what do you want your legacy to be with this research what does success look like for you um i know that's a very broad second last question but i'm just interested to see what you think yeah i mean <clears throat> I think there's this great book called The Second Mountain. And what it talks about is that most people climb the first mountain and the first mountain is about like status and you know, money and achieving things. And, and we think that's like, that's what life's all about. I've got to get the house, get the car. But when we get to the top of that mountain, two things happen. Number one, we find out that it's not very fulfilling and number two, there's a mountain behind it. And the second mountain is all about contribution and impact and how do we like have meaning and purpose. And yeah, that's something I've very much gone through. Like initially in my business, it was all about, well, how do I make enough so I can pay my staff? Or how do I make enough so I can pay my mortgage? And what I'm getting to the point of is really starting to think about what is the legacy we leave behind. Yeah, right. and, and it exists in two levels. I, I think number one is to elevate the quality of um, data and knowledge out there. If, if you look at a lot of you know, presenters or consultants, it's often just stuff that they've dreamed up or they've come up with a concept, but they've never really tested it. Yeah. So what we do with all our programs is we get a, an a university to independently measure the impact. So we don't get to touch the data at all um, because just bias will make us, you know, look at things in a certain way. So all our data is independent. And if you look at the Flourish movement, we get Deakin University to study people before and after. And what we've just completed is the sustainability research Wow. So people that did flourish five years ago, how are they going? Are they still doing the work? Are they still implementing the things we taught them? So one of the legacies is, and we can't find any wellbeing program in education that goes anywhere near that level of scrutiny and rigor. So one, we want to raise the bar on how we measure and evaluate programs but secondly, what my legacy I want to be is that encourage people to be high performers, but without the collateral damage that normally comes with that. Yeah. So I've spent my whole career around elite people, either elite sports people, you know, elite business people, entrepreneurs, and the majority of them are, are a disaster in terms of their personal life or their relationships or um, 
you know, their, their, even their health or their mental health. And the most common thing is when I sit down with these very senior wise business people, if we're at dinner and they've had a couple of glasses of wine, what comes out is they go, oh man, that third space thing. I wish I'd heard that 20 years ago because I used to come home and yell at the kids and take my day out on people. Wow. And it just, you know, that's my regret. So what, what we're trying to do in our research is go, well, how do you be successful? How do you um, perform at a high level, but not at the cost that is usually that that usually happens if you get what i mean yeah absolutely yeah that that, they're the two legacies i'd like to leave wow uh and they house that's so significant thank you for uh thank you for for sharing those i i think one of the things that 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 really resonate resonated with me with your work was that like it has to be possible like it, it it just there has to be a way to i'm thinking in terms of education to to live uh authentically um and to also do things that are amazing professionally but not at the expense of what's most important yeah very much it just has to be a way um i don't know what that is um but there has to be because um i mean you look at the uh, retention rates for for new teachers in particular it's shocking absolutely shocking um so i think i i commend uh the work that you and your company are doing i think it is amazing and and so uh, so needed in this current climate more more than ever and so um yeah thank you thank you thank you so much for all the work all the tireless hours that you're you're putting into this it's it's really really meaningful so thank you very much thanks Uh, i really appreciate that that means a lot yeah and just final question uh, adam before i let you go on with your day um where can people uh find out more about you and your work um, just, you know, dradamfraser.com is my website, dradamfraser.com. Yeah. Um, that's probably the best place. Uh, I'm on all the socials and LinkedIn and the whole bit. So, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Dr. Adam Fraser, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I, I really do appreciate it. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure that there's so many teachers and professionals out there that will um, hear this episode. and. Um, that it will really impact them. So thank you for the work you're doing. Pleasure, Matt. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask, if you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.